John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that, light, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Tinsley. Good evening, everyone. It's um, lovely to see you here, particularly those who are new. Um, you're very welcome. Let me add my welcome to Glenn's. It's great to have you here with us. Um, we're going to look together for a few minutes at that passage that Tinsley's just read for us from John 1. So it would really help me if you could have it somewhere that you can see it. And um, I'm going to pray before we look at it together. Father, this is the word of the Lord. And so we want to treat these words as things that you're saying to us this evening. So please help us to think like that, and we pray that uh, in light of that, you give us uh, a right expectancy and excitement and humility before these things. And we pray that uh, you'd be at work through them, speaking to us, giving light, um, and helping us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, there was darkness and ignorance and nothingness. And then the thing happened, and there was light. And then things changed, and they started to make sense so that the world could move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. That story um, has been told again and again and again throughout human history by more or less every group of people, uh, every view of the world ever. Um, it was all dark, and then the thing happened, and then we started to be able to see clearly. I wonder what you would put as the thing. I mean, people have done, put all sorts of different things. So, you know, the Enlightenment, before it was, there, was, there was darkness and superstition and uh, that sort of thing, and then, then the lights came on, and we could see clearly. Perhaps when a particular politician came to power, darkness before then, and then things started to change. Perhaps when Gareth Southgate became the England manager, that's the moment at which the lights start to come on. Perhaps we might say 
now we are kind of more awakened to social injustices and social issues, and now we can just see things a bit more clearly for what they are. And in each case, perhaps apart from the Gareth Southgate one, there's some measure of truth in that. Or we might feel, well, that there's no light that gives light to everyone. You know, people have got to find their own light. That's how life works. But in spite of all of that, darkness is quite persistent, isn't it? How many people in the world, I wonder, feel like they have a grasp on what they are here for, or have a sense of what the world is for, know where they've come from and where they're going. We're in the dark about all of these things. Above all, we live in a world that's in the dark about God. Is he there? What's he, she, it, they like? How would we know? Does it matter? This term, as we've heard, we're going to be looking at John's gospel together, his account of the life of Jesus. And he, as we've just heard, starts off by saying that this is a story about light coming into the world. It's a unique story. It's not like any of the others. And if we'll see it, um, it will light up everything. So as we look together at John's introduction to the story. Um, I mean, we're barely going to scratch the surface of, it, but I, surface of it, but I want us to see four great transformations that come about in these first 18 verses. And as we see these, they're kind of themes that are going to keep popping up throughout John's gospel as we go through it. We're going to see darkness made light, the word made flesh, rejection made glorious, and believers made children. That's what we're going to go through. Let's start with darkness made light. And verse 1 to 5 introduced us to a character called the Word. I'll read uh, from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. So this character, he was there in the very beginning, we're told, so he's eternal. Uh, he was with God, so he's, he's personal. He's with in a relational sense. He was God, so he's divine. And through him, all things were made. So he's, he's involved in God's process of creation. Now, if such a person as that exists, think about what that means for the world. It means there is a God, but not just any old concept of God, but a particular God. God who is more than one person, absolutely united in nature. And the key thing for what we're thinking about here is that it means there is a God who is not silent, but who wants to communicate. Surely that's conveyed by calling him the Word. Some of the people reading John's Gospel when he first wrote it would have been Jewish and very familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Word of God is a way of speaking about what, when God is in action, when his, his powerful activity in the world is, is described as his word. So right back in the first chapter of the Bible, it says he, he created the world by speaking words. And it's by his word that he reveals stuff and by his word that he saves people. And here's John saying, yeah, God's powerful activity in the Old Testament, it's a person. And a person whose agenda, in verse 4, is to give light I think it's also reasonable to think that um, John had some readers who would have read verse 1, and in the beginning was the word, and their ears would have pricked up. 
um, because um, word there is a, a translation of a, a Greek word, logos, and amongst certain people at the time, logos, that, that word was a way of speaking about uh, an ordering principle that made sense of the world, kind of underlying thing, underlying reason behind why the world is here, uh, what life is all about, what the universe is all about. And they sort of thought, well, if we line ourselves up with that word, with that ordering principle, then our lives will count and um, they'll make sense. And so they scratch their heads to work out, okay, what is this thing that will make sense of everything? And um, we have been scratching ever since. What, what will make sense of the world for us? And we look for it out there, a theory of everything. God particle or something. Or, or maybe we give up on looking for some objective meaning in the world and we look for it in here instead. What, what do I feel like my life is for? Or we give up altogether and we say, it's no meaning, nothing like that. And we're, we're left with, with uh, what Macbeth said, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But John is saying, there is a logos. There is a word. There is underlying our whole universe and your life something that will make sense of it. And it's a particular person. The word was with God and the word was God. And as we said, the story that John wants to tell is that the word has got an agenda and his agenda is to shine into the darkness. That is, he's not remaining hidden, but he wants to speak. He wants to make things known. He wants to inform us the sort of stuff that we need to know. In fact, that's um, how John ends the passage. Look down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, so it's the same kind of ideas as verse 1, has made him known. So the word, the son, has made God known. That's the claim. Most people, I guess, never really get around to thinking about what life is all about. It's too much to think about. I've got enough on my plate. And when people do get around to thinking about what life might be like, I guess they imagine themselves in, as though they're in a darkened room, kind of fumbling around in the dark, darkness for a light switch, just hoping that they find it before they stub their, stub their toe. Like, how, how would you know what life is about? But John is saying, if we'll open our eyes, we'll find that somebody has turned the lights on. Somebody has, has spoken to make sense of what life is all about. Darkness made light. This is why we spend our time, as we're together here on Sundays in midweek, looking at the Bible. Because we believe John when he says that God has done something to make himself known. And our place, therefore, is to listen to what he said. A light's come on in the darkness. We're not just in the world of speculation and I wonder what life's about and I wonder what God's like. We're in the world of revelation. God has revealed. Briefly, just before we move on, I think this raises some important questions for agnostics. Maybe there's, there's a number of people here who, who kind of describe themselves as an agnostic. And if the way that the world is, is we're all kind of fumbling around in a dark room for answers about God, then agnosticism is a totally reasonable position, because you're just saying, well, I haven't found anything yet, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sort of making a commitment to whether you can find anything. It's a reasonable position. But if the lights have gone on, 
If verse 18 is right, that the Son has made God known, then being an agnostic is not a neutral position. It's a position that says verse 18 actually isn't right. God has not been made known. So if that's you um, and you're here, um, thank you for for being genuinely open-minded to this. And I hope you don't mind if I challenge you to engage with verse 18 and the claim of it. Why not start by thinking about the place where John says God has been revealed? Start by thinking about Jesus. Darkness made light. The question then is, okay, he's made himself known. Great. How has he made himself known? Um, If the darkness has been made light, where is the light? Where can I find it? Well, here is the second transformation. The word made flesh. By the way, I'm persuaded that this introduction to the gospel is structured a bit like a mirror image. So the the start bit and the end bit match, verse 1 to 5 and verse 18, they're kind of similar, we've we've seen that already. And then the next bits in match as well, uh, verse 6 to 9 and then verse 14 to 17. And it's those bits that we're thinking about now, the next bits in. And I don't know if it struck you as weird when uh, Tinsley was reading the passage for us that we go from, in verse 1 to 5, all of this cosmic beginning of time stuff to verse 6, there once was a man called John. Um, And then in verse 15, he's there again. John, we're on the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth, John. And um, if you've read much of the Gospels, you'll, you'll know John was a, he was a, a preacher um, in Judea in the first century. We call him John the Baptist. And there was quite a lot that was a bit weird about him. Um, but he's a, he's a strangely mundane place to go, isn't he? After you've had all of this stuff in verse 1 to 5. You know, maybe you were feeling excited about all of the Logos stuff and all of that. That was kind of getting your juices flowing. And then all of a sudden, we're in the sand and sunburn of the Judean desert. But actually, we need to go there because that is exactly how God's light came into the world. The way that he brought light and revelation was not just to tell us stuff or to write in the sky, I'm here, or just to give us a book. But the way that he brought light and revelation into the world was by coming into it it himself, by coming into the sand and sunburn of the Judean desert. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. As the creator stepped into his own creation. But John actually, he, he uses a deliberately provocative way of saying that. He could have said... The word became man. But what he gives us is the less sanitized version of that. The word became flesh. Think about that word. Flesh is what you can smell when you walk into a butcher's shop. Um, It bruises and it blisters and it scabs. And it gets wet and wrinkly and dry and flaky. And it gets shut in doors and it shivers and it sweats and all of that. And as we'll read on in John, when you flog it with a whip, or when you hammer nails into it, or you ram a crown of thorns onto it, it bleeds. And then eventually you put it into a tomb. And the claim is that the infinite God of the universe, 
chose to subject himself to that. The word became flesh. A corpse at Good Friday, a baby before that at Christmas. And we'll never quite get to the bottom of how that works. Every time we start to think about how that works, it kind of blows our tiny minds. But the claim is that God the Son, the eternal word, added a human nature to himself. He didn't just look human for a while or pretend to be human, um, but he, in, in perfect unity, a divine nature and a human nature, lived together in one man. So that the place where God's light shines... The place where God has made himself known. The place where, as verse 14 says it, God's glory can be seen is in an actual human being whose life is written on the pages of history here, who had a fingerprint and an address and an accent and a birthday, and he's still alive today. G.K. Chesterton, a Roman Catholic author, put it like this. This is a longish quote, but I really like it, so I'm going to read most of it anyway. He says, right in the middle of history stands an enormous exception. It's quite unlike anything else. It is nothing less than the loud assertion that the mysterious maker of the world has visited his world in person. It declares that really, and even recently, right in the middle of historic times, that it walk into the world this original invisible being about whom the thinkers make theories and the mythologists hand down myths the man who made the world. It is the one great startling statement that man has made since he spoke his first articulate word. If we want to know God, if we want to make sense of the world, if we want light, we need not to guess or speculate, we need to look at Jesus, at the actual details of his actual life. And again, that is what we're going to do. Uh, here at St. Ebbs, week by week, Sundays in small groups, we're going to look at Jesus. And again, if you're here as a visitor, or just not a visitor necessarily, but just not 100% sure what you think about Christianity or what you think about life, I think John would have a lot of sympathy, and he would say, well, come and have a look at Jesus. It doesn't really need anything that complicated, because light has come into the world in a particular person, and it's by looking at him that we see the glory of God. And you might say to John in that imagined conversation, well, I appreciate your sympathy, John, but it's all very well for you. you. You actually saw him. In which case, I think he'd say, that's why I wrote you this book. Um, at the end of it, don't worry about turning to it, but at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, he says, these things are written that you, you who've never seen Jesus in person, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, he wrote the book, for people like us who haven't seen Jesus physically yet so that we could have access to the glory of God. So, have a look. And um, that's what we're going to do together over these next few weeks. But don't feel you, you can only do it on Sundays. There's, at least by that door, there's some free copies of John's Gospel for you to grab. Um, do that. Um, read it with a friend. I think that's the advice that John would give. Come and see. The Word made flesh. So that, as we've seen in verse 14... We could see his glory. But there is a particular place where we see the glory of God in Jesus, which takes us to the third transformation in these verses. Rejection made glorious. 
you've been a Christian for a long time, these are such familiar words, it's easy to slightly miss the surprises of them. You would think that if God sends his light into the world, everyone would drop everything and come and hear what he's got to say. You would think that like the core curriculum of every course in every university in the world would be what the light has to say. But John knows what you and I know, which is that that is not what has happened. Have a look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. A few weeks' time in chapter 3, we'll see why that is, why the world didn't recognize him. But John's, uh, uh, Jesus, in fact, says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. Think about light. One of the things that it does is to expose. Think about when you wake up first thing in the morning and light goes on or the curtains get thrown open and you kind of hide yourself from it because it's exposing and it's a bit too much and you don't really want it. That is a very common response, John says, to Jesus and to the light that he brings. Shut it out. It's too bright. Get rid of it. And again, over the pages of this gospel, he's going to tell the story of that widespread refusal to receive Jesus. And it's grim. It's violent and aggressive. And it culminates in the most brutal form of execution that anybody had yet imagined. And you might think that that would be an embarrassment for John. You might think, given that awkward ending to the story, he'd toned down some of this light stuff. But he doesn't. Because the staggering claim that he is going to tell us is that the moment where the rejection of Jesus reaches its most hideous intensity is the moment at which his glory shines and his light blazes with the most beautiful intensity. All through this book, Jesus does amazing, God-like stuff. Miracle after miracle, and all of them reveal something of his glory, John says. But it, it's not until chapter 12 that Jesus says, now the hour has come for me to be glorified. And it becomes clear that what he's talking about when he talks about his glory is his death on the cross. So when in chapter 1, verse 14, John says, we have seen his glory, what I think he had in mind more than anything else was Jesus' death on the cross. That is where the full extent of his love is shown. That is the clearest showing off of the gracious, humble, self-sacrificial character, just character of God that's ever been seen. It's a beautiful paradox and transformation that Jesus brings about. His rejection by his own people becomes the moment of his glory. So to see the glory of God, to see the lights come on, to make sense, therefore, of what the world is all about and what life is all about and what we are all about, the place to look above all is the moment of Jesus' rejection on the cross. That's where we'll see the light, John says. Final transformation. And again, all of these, they're just kind of trailed here in chapter one, and then we're going to see them um, again and again and again throughout. Believers made children. 
I guess the question is, what is the point of all of this revealing? Why do we need light? Why do we need to know things about God? It's not just so that, so that we can know things or so that we can have the right view of the world or so that God can have more subscribers. The reason we need to know the stuff is because God wants a particular kind of relationship with people. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is why God shines his light in the darkness, so that the people who live in the darkness can become his family. It's a universal longing, I think, amongst human beings for family and community. And in the last couple of years, at least particularly in our culture, people have been warning about a loneliness epidemic. And maybe you feel some of that this evening. You're here in Oxford, a brand new place, and you just feel totally isolated and alone. Maybe you've been in the same place for a long time, but you still feel it. We long to be connected and, and known and loved, and it feels like that's harder and harder to find. And the Bible would say the reason why we long for that is that we were designed for that. Connection with each other, connection ultimately with God. And John is saying here that you can know your maker and be connected to him forever. You can be a part of his family. Because Jesus died and rose and he's alive today, we can know him and through him become children of God. Maybe you've been a Christian for ages here this evening and you've just slipped back into thinking of yourself as merely a servant of God, merely an obeyer of God, just someone who does what you're told. Because of what Jesus has done, what you are is a child of God. Feel that reassurance again this evening. He loves you. You've been given the right to be his child. Perhaps you've never really thought about that as a possibility before. Um, you thought that what God wants from me is for me to follow his rules and come to his buildings and tick his boxes and all that sort of stuff, bulk up his numbers. Actually, what God is inviting you to do is to join his family, to be his child. Just noticed on a shelf the other day, a, a book written a few years ago by a lovely guy who lived um, in this city from a, a Muslim background, became a Christian, and he wrote a book about his story, and it was called, I Dared to Call Him Father. There he was entering into the experience that Jesus brings about in verse 12. Light has come into the world, and it's come in Jesus' life. John says, I've seen his glory. Come and have a look with me. Don't fumble around in the dark. Don't live in ignorance of what life is all about and who God is, but come and see. So shall we do that together um, as a church? Shall we look together and perhaps look yourself day by day at Jesus? Shall we think about and remember and, and focus above all on his death, his darkest day as the greatest explosion of light that the world has ever seen? Shall we come together and receive again what he offers? Not, not just information, but himself. Membership of his family loving relationship and life that never ends. John says, no one 
has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for making God known to us and therefore bringing light into our world. Thank you for the unbelievable and inexpressible lengths that you went to to do that and for your grace in shining your light still into our lives. We pray that you would make us those who day by day receive you and in doing so know and enjoy relationship with God as our Father. Please might that be us this week. Amen.